irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to L.A. Talk Radio. Hey, J. Michael Michael here for 2019. And if you're like me and love talk radio, but you can't find anything worth listening to on the AM dial, then how about this? How about you turn into L.A. Talk Radio? See, L.A. Talk Radio is a dot com and has it all from sports to music to self-help to, well, just about anything, including talk. And right now we have the new writer's favorite show, The Writer's Block. So how about you sit back, you pour yourself another scotch, listen to the show, because it all starts right now. You're listening to The Writer's Block with Jim Christina and Russ Avison right here on L.A. Talk Radio. There's a little bit of Paul Simon's Angie from the Wednesday Morning 3 a.m. album on Simon and Garfunkel. And I thought that was you. It could have been. I used to play it. I know. Oh, there you go. Hey, good morning, Russ. Good, good morning, afternoon, afternoon evening, evening. What is And all of the above. All of the above. Hi, this is Jim Christini, your host for the Writer's Block on L.A. Talk Radio. I am in the studio with Mr. Russ Avison this evening. And on the line, we have just a terrific guy. And we'll get to him in just a minute. Um, we've been waiting for a long time to get this guy hooked on and put on the radio. So we're going to be doing that in just a second. But right now, hey, Russ. Um, yes, sir. Um, how are you? I haven't talked to you. I know. It's been a while. God, you know. I'm, I'm just recovering from my hockey game last night. Oh, that's right. You played hockey last night. Yeah, we lost in overtime. You did? Yeah. I'm sorry. In a shootout. It was sad. I'm recovering from my nap. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, when you hit a certain age, you're allowed to take naps and not feel guilty. Ah, that's the problem I've always faced is feeling ah. guilty because I feel like I'm missing something. <gasps> yeah, that's me too. Uh, okay, well, you know what? I've been, we've been w- working on this guy for a while now, so let's just bring him in. His name, of course, is Peter James. He is an established film producer. Before he became a full-time author and was educated at Charterhouse, then at film school. He has produced numerous films, including The Merchant of Venice, starring Al Pacino. He has an honorary doctorate from the University of Brighton in recognition of his services to literature. And the community is patron of the Neighborhood Watch nationwide. Crime Stoppers in Sussex, Brighton and Hove, Samaritans, and Relate. Peter has twice been chair of the Crime Writers Association, the CWA, and has won many literary awards, including the publicly voted ITV3 Crime Thriller Awards, People's Bestseller Dagger, and he was shortlisted for the Welcome Trust Book Prize. Holy crap. I know. You flip three pages while I know, you're reading and, and that. I, you know, it goes. It keeps going. So, you know what? Let's, let's let him tell his own story. Let's bring into the writer's block right now. Would you please welcome Mr. Peter James. <laughs> Peter, are you with us? Love the applause. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we always ask you to write your own bio. That way, if you lie, your friends will know. Absolutely. <laughs> it's too bad you couldn't be here in person. I mean, you know what they say about a true work. friend? A true friend is somebody who knows everything about you and still likes you. Exactly. Well, they also know when you're lying, and they don't care. True. <laughs> How you doing, my friend? Yeah, really good. Uh, it's uh, it's been a, It's been a challenge getting you on this show, I have to say. I know. We've tried it all over the world, I, I think. And yeah, I think we it. first tried it in Barbados, and then... Uh, then we went to, uh, and then, then we got locked out of the studio. Then we got locked out of the studio the last time. So here you are, finally. It's good yeah, to the talk bad to you. News is, guys, now you're locked in the studio. And you're stuck <laughs> in the twenty-four hours. We actually are locked in the studio, <laughs> but that's okay. Have that's you got okay. a ghost in there with you? Uh, you know what? I think I think there is one in this studio. Well, I don't know. There's a, there's a stench of the last guest that was in here. Well, no, that would be the other studio. Oh, that was next door. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's with what's her name? Yeah. Amber Lynn. Yes. 
Anyway, you you well, know what? Christ, he's been dead a few hundred years. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, we we actually Russ and I both read your book, um, Absolute Proof. And I, uh, barring the fact that it was quite a long tome, um, what a wonderful story! Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Can you you want to give us a little bit of background on the book and a little bit of a, a synopsis? Sure. What happened? It, the book began, believe it or not, back in 1989. I had a phone call out of the blue one afternoon from an elderly sounding guy, and he said, "Is that Peter James, the author?" And I said, yes, hesitantly. And he said, thank God I found you. It's taken me two weeks. I have found every Peter James in the phone book. So we're, not the, we're not the only ones who couldn't get a hold of you, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be I'm much harder than you guys. It seems to be an ongoing problem, Peter. <laughs> anyway. And I wasn't even ex-directory back then. He <laughs> said, uh, I am... Um, I'm not a lunatic, Mr. James. I'm, I'm a former uh, bomber, Second World War bomber pilot and a university academic. I have been given absolute proof of God's existence, and I've been told you're the man to help me get taken seriously. I get, okay. <laughs> I said, do you want to? I was one of those moments where I thought, do I have that now or not? And... I don't know, I'm sure you guys, because you talk to people all the time, something I've learned over life is that everybody you ever meet has a story. Not necessarily one that's going to make a novel, but often you know, everyone has had something happen in their lives that's, that's interesting, if you can just mine that nugget out of them. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. I, I, I do tend to give people the time time of day and, until they convince me otherwise that they are complete <laughs> So I said, do you want to tell me a bit more? And he said, yes. He said, my wife recently died from cancer. And before she died, we made an agreement that I would go to a medium and try and communicate with her on the other side. And I did this uh, a few months after she passed. And instead of my wife coming through, this male came through who said he was a representative of God and that God was extremely concerned about the state of the world and felt that if mankind could have faith in him reaffirmed, it would get us back on an even keel. And as proof of his bona fides, he's given me three pieces of information nobody on earth knows. And he said, the author, Peter James, is the person to help you get taken seriously. So, Mr. James, you know, you are going to have to help me save the world. <laughs> And I go, well, you know, that's that's a pretty big ask. Mm -hmm. um, I said, I said, what are these coordinates? He said, well, I need to come and see you. Uh, I'm going to need four days of your time. <laughs> I said, excuse me, I'm, you know, I'm I'm a pretty busy guy. Four days is quite a big ask. I said, I could give you half an hour, and if, you know, if we need more time, we'll take it from there. And he said, okay, fair enough. And he told me, he said, he said my name is Harry Nixon, and, and I made an appointment with him. I thought. Four o'clock uh, the following week, a Tuesday afternoon, I thought four would be safe because my then wife would have been home at half five. And if, if he had been in a stranglehold, she could have bashed him over the head. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he rocked up at the house and he was a nice looking guy in his mid 70s. He looked like a retired bank manager with those kind of rather roomy old man eyes. And he sort of shook my hand and he said, Mr. James, you know, you and I do have to save the world. Anyway, I. I said, well, I'll do my best. I sat him down, get him a cup of tea, and I said, so where do we begin? And he takes this manuscript out of his attaché case. It's about a 1,000 pages long. He said, we begin with you reading this. Uh, and I said, this would, well, leave it with me. You know, I, uh, you know, I'll read it over the next few weeks. He said, no, no, no. He said, this was channeled to me by God. I cannot let this out of my sight. Uh, so I said, so you're going to sit there while I sit here and read it? He said, yes. <laughs> I said, Mr. Nixon, it's going to take me four days to read this. I told you so, Mr. James. <laughs> so I said, you're going to sit there for four days while I sit here and read it. It's not going to happen, okay? Uh, and I said, and what, before we go any further, what are these three sets of compass coordinates that you've been, these three pieces of information you've been given that nobody on earth knows? He said, I have been given the compass coordinates for the location of the tomb of Akhenaten, who was Tutankhamun's uncle, the first monotheist pharaoh, which has never been found. Right. The, locus, the 
the compass coordinates for the location of the Holy Grail and the coordinates for the location of the Ark of the Covenant. And I said, okay, have you looked for any of these? And he said, yes. He said, I, you know, remember, I, I, I was a pilot in the war. I can navigate. The compass coordinates for the Holy Grail are at a place called Chalicewell near Glastonbury. Now, I'd never heard of Chalicewell at this point. Chalicewell is a holy site on the edge of a small town in Somerset in the West Country, where Joseph of Arimathea was rumored to have brought the Holy Grail containing Christ's blood after the crucifixion and concealed it. Um, he said, I have been there metal detecting and dowsing on exactly these coordinates, and there's something under the ground. I've approached, the, it's run by a group of trustees, I've approached the trustees for permission to do an archaeological dig, and they won't take me seriously. But, Mr. James, I think they would take you seriously. And I said, well, fine. And anyway, long story short, he agrees to leave the manuscript, and he trundles off into the evening. And I start reading it, and I get 20 pages in and begin losing the will to live. It's just... <laughs> it's rumblings, it's the, the tracks of the Bible and annotations. By sheer chance, the next day I had to go to Bristol, which is in the west of England, to do a BBC radio interview for, for the, the, the new book I had out then. And the presenter and I were just chatting at the end of the interview, and suddenly she mentioned out the blue, she says, Chalice Well. And a kind of shiver went down because I've always been fascinated by coincidence. And I'd never heard of Chalice Well before. Now I'm thinking twice in two days. And I said, what do you know about Chalice Well? She said, oh, my uncle's a trustee. <laughs> so now I can really feel there's this two fingers pointing at my head and going, you are the chosen one, boy. <laughs> yes. Um, and I was really freaked. And I left her. And in fact, I told her the story. Then I left. And I, and I found a friend of mine who is a very modern thinking bishop. A guy called Dominic Walker at that time was Bishop of Reading, and you know this—he's—he's he's one of the kind of very progressive church guys. He double first in psychology, um, and I met up with him two days later, and I told him what I've just told you, and I said, "What do you think, Dominic?" And he said, "Well, I firstly, proof is the enemy of faith. Secondly, I would want more than three sets of compass coordinates to have proof of God." Uh, I said, what would you want? He said, I, I would want something that defies the laws of physics of the universe. I mean, a pretty big miracle. And I said, if somebody could deliver that, what then? And he looked at me and said, you know what I really think? They'd be murdered. Because whose God would it be? You'd have every different faction of Anglican, Catholic, Judaic, Islamic, claiming ownership. And you'd have communist countries like China not wanting a higher power usurping their authority. And if that was my light bulb moment, I just thought, I have got the makings of a fantastic international thriller here. And that was the starting point. Wow. <laughs> That's a hell of a story in itself. I it was it was it was really I just came away and I thought it's really and this was way you know, years before the Da Vinci Code. Uh -huh. And and I, I then thought, well, I was I was always kind of busy with film and then with my kind of I was committed to a series of books, but in the background, I started researching. And I felt that for the book to work, first I had to understand all the world's religions, and a because I, I needed to, to to write authoritatively, and b I didn't want to offend any of the major religions. <laughs> End up with a fatwa like Salman Rushdie or something, but it was more than that. <laughs> I wanted just to really understand. And I wanted to understand atheism far better than I, than I really did. So I spent the next 20 years um, really researching, talking to church, any, any, any theologian, any clergyman, any hardcore atheist, really anybody bright that I met to either had faith or really didn't have faith. And then I met Laura, met Laura in 2013, and she was not my, my, my present wife. And Laura was not a believer, but she was fascinated by the story. And we, I kind of realized for, for the book to work, there was one thing that I absolutely had to come up with, which was an ending, that, that miracle, that um, 
something which defies the laws of physics of the universe that that appears or that happens that even the most hardcore atheists like a Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris would struggle to completely dismiss. And for the next four years, Lara and I, we just embarked on this campaign of going and talking to academics at Oxford and Cambridge, talk to scientists, uh, theologians, people who had faith and people who didn't, people who once had faith, lost it, got it back. And one morning over breakfast, Lara just said, I think I've got the miracle. And she had, she told it to me and I summarized that was it. And after 28 years, I actually wrote the book in two and a half months. It just sort of flowed. Wow. And it's the longest book I've ever written. It's, yeah, it's long. I, I'll give you that. But it doesn't, but it doesn't drag. No, it, it, it does it, not drag. And uh, two and a half months, really? Yeah, it, it just, I just, I was actually going to, I tore my ankle running and I was going to have an operation. And the last minute I had a second opinion. He said, I didn't need an operation. And I'd canceled my diary from October 2017 right through to Christmas. And so I suddenly thought, right, now's my opportunity. And I literally just sat and, and it almost kind of wrote itself. And it's been a really, yeah, I love, I love the experience. For me, the whole research was a great journey. I mean, a part of it, I spent a week in a in a monastery in, in Greece, a really tough monastery where there's complete denial of pleasure, uh, where the monks get up at two o'clock in the morning and um, pray until six thirty, and, and and I. I mean, it, apart from change, it, you know, it's changed my own kind of views. But um, you know, I don't. I don't want to give the impression to, to my readers that the book is just a religious term. It's very much a thriller in the kind of same. I mean, Dan Brown did me a great favor with the Da Vinci Code because I think he. I really I liked that book when I read it initially, and, and he really broke the mold of. I think up until that point, I don't think anybody really dared write a thriller. Which which touched on sensitive religious issues, uh, and he kind of drove a coach and horses through that rule book, which kind of paved the way for absolute proof. Let me ask you, Peter, what what was your spiritual belief or your religious affiliation when this was all presented to you and you started on this journey? Well, I come from a kind of curious religious background, and my dad was completely disinterested and lapsed Anglican. Uh, my mother was a Jewish refugee from Vienna, uh, uh, and they met in, in in England in the war and, and, and got married. And, and my my mother hid the fact that she was Jewish right through my childhood. Um, the first I knew even what a Jew was uh, was when I was thirteen, and I went to my kind of boarding school, to Charterhouse, and ten guys sat on the wall, point going, going Jew, Jew, Jew at me. Mm-hmm. This was nineteen. Uh, 62 in England, and, and England was very anti-Semitic after the war, unbelievably. Mm-hmm. And I always, and my mother, so my mother completely hid that she was Jewish, even when she was dying in a hospice in 1999. And, and she, um, I said, you know, why did you hide it all those years? And she said, I was scared the war might, you know, the Nazis might rise up again, and you kids would be better off not knowing. And also, she said it was she. She built up a really successful business. She became the Queen's glove maker um, in, in the early fifties. And she said it, you know, it wasn't a good thing to be a Jewish woman in business in England in, in the fifties. What an awful thing to live with for so long. Yeah, for sure. Even on her deathbed, she actually said, "I want to." I burst into tears. She said, "I want to apologize to you for being Jewish." And I just cried. I said, "Look." I um when I went I went out to Canada when I because I was, so I, I was brought up in this kind of really mixed odd odd family with this sort of denial of the sort of Jewish thing, um, and I was at, I went to this Anglican school where we had religion stuffed down our throats. We had to go to chapel every single day, and and for two hours on a Sunday, and teachers would watch us, and if we weren't seen to be praying actively or singing actively, we'd, we'd get punished. And I, and I came out of Charterhouse at the age of 18, and I thought, that's it, I'm, I am done with religion. And, and I kind of 
for years I was an agnostic veering on on atheist until uh, that phone call in 1989 and that that was a kind of a, a turning point not in, not just in writing the book absolute proof but in in, in my own thinking um, and it, it it changed my views because I've met, over the course of writing the research in the book, I met so many smart, intelligent people um, who have struggled with just the, you know, the hardcore atheist view. Um, and I think one of the most, for me, one of the most interesting people that I came across, and one of the people who I think did more than anything to change my change my mind, I mean, and wh- where I where I where, where my mind has changed to now is the point where I absolutely believe that there is a, there is a bigger intelligence out there in the universe than, than just us. Um, I'm not necessarily one way or the other convinced that when we die, we go to heaven or to wherever it is, but I'm certainly a long way convinced that there is a bigger picture, mm-hmm. whatever that is. And, and, and one person above all others did a lot to convince me. And he, a guy called Anthony Flew, he was a Cambridge professor, and for 40 years he was the world's most hardcore atheist. I mean, more than more than Sam Harris and Dawkins and Douglas Dennett and Christopher Hitchens. And in 2003, he changed his mind, and he wrote a book in 2004 in which it was, the title was "There Is No God" with a no crossed out and, and an A in its place. And two things above everything else changed his mind. And the first, and I have elements of him in, in the book as, 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 a, as a character. The first is the, the discovery of DNA by Crick and Watson. He just felt this was so complex that it just could not have happened from, from random evolution, natural selection. It had to have been designed. And his second was... And I and I do use this in the book. It, it's the monkey and the typewriter experiment. Uh, I don't know how familiar you guys are with it or, or listeners, but the, the monkey and typewriter experiment has long been one of the arguments used by by the big atheists like Richard Dawkins, and uh, I think I think he refers to it in the God Delusion. And the monkey and typewriter theory is that if you had infinity and you sat a monkey at a typewriter, and it just typed away, hammered away at the keys, eventually, one of the combinations of keystrokes would be the complete works of Shakespeare, and in the right order. And so, and, and this was how Dawkins and all the atheists came to explain how you, the three of us, are having this conversation, that we're here, that, that we're sentient beings, from having from come out of the primal swamp, all those hundreds of thousands, millions of years ago. So a friend of Flew, who was an astrophysicist, actually did the experiment. He put six monkeys in a cage with a word processor, a perpetual paper feed, and a device for giving them treats when, when they hit a combination of keys. And it would to just encourage them to hit the keys, not any particular combination, just to encourage them to keep typing. And after 28 days, they typed 40 pages of which there wasn't a single intelligible word. There wasn't even a, an A with a space outside. And Flew's friend did the math, and he calculated that the universe would run out of resources before a monkey typed a single Shakespeare sonnet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the only problem that I have with that theory is that when you talk about unlimited time and our inability to conceptualize that, you know, it, it, it's it's even we're, we're doing that with climate change now. We're yeah. saying, oh, you know, uh, ten years ago it was warmer than it is now, so climate isn't getting warmer. But we're looking at this small speck of time, and we don't really right. see the big picture. Although that's what they're trying to do with these monkeys. And six monkeys in a room for twenty eight days is is nothing. Absolutely, yeah, and we and we don't have that luxury. But I think. The point, the point that he was making was that even with six monkeys typing at six six typewriters, there was no sign of any 
if, if you're not even going to get an A with a gap either side of it in that length of time. And, you know, the sheer, the sheer, I mean, if you think about the, say, Bitcoins right now, which rely on like 32 digits and, and is, all, is almost impossible to crack. They will be crackable when, when quantum computers come in, but sure. 32 digit code is impossible to crack. If you look at the number of digits in a Shakespeare sonnet, which is way, way more than that, and the Shakespeare sonnet is just 14, 16 lines compared to like a complete play or, or a book. Well, you know, there's a saying that any problem can be solved with enough money and enough time. And exactly. I think I think this theory about typing out uh, Shakespeare's sonnet with enough monkeys and enough time, I think it'll happen. I think it's just beyond our capability to well, understand how long it'll be. Maybe just increase the amount yeah. of monkeys or give them a longer time. Yeah, there you go. You know, smart kids turn them into humans. You know, you know I mean, <laughs> but this is getting away from your real point. Yeah, I'm sorry yeah, to yeah, sorry yeah, to drag yeah. you off. You know, there's another person that I found immensely interesting who's an American computer scientist called Danny Hillis, and Hillis started Thinking Machines Corporation. He was the kind of founder of the parallel processor, and he, in about 1998, 99, had a piece published. I think it was in Nature. In which he's, he made another really interesting kind of point that, that he said the human being and a frog have technically a very similar eye. So if you guys had your eyes replaced with eyes from frogs right now, you'd see well enough to get home after this talk. Um, but a frog that's sitting on a lawn outside your studio would have absolutely no concept of, of what's going on. It, it's, a frog can only think, can, can only see light, food, shelter, water. Even if the frog had its eyes replaced with yours, it would still have no understanding of you guys in a radio studio, of this conversation. Not because it couldn't see you, but because its brain is not big enough to make any sense of what it does see. Right, 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 right. And, and Hillis said, Okay, if you, if you translate that to like a goldfish in a goldfish bowl, a goldfish in a goldfish bowl, its horizon is the rim of that bowl, and it's probably a blurry vision beyond it. You walk up and give it food or whatever, but that that can see nothing beyond its bowl. And he said, you know, maybe you know we think we're so damn smart, but you know maybe we are just as that frog thinks is not capable of bigger bigger picture thought, but maybe we humans are not either. I buy that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, coming up, coming with a, a an epiphany like that after having been primarily a non-believer for X amount of years, and and all of a sudden stumbling on the epiphany that Jesus, there might be something here. You know, that's got to be a little shocking to your system, I would think. That uh, you know, I'm per- certainly certainly a sh- big enough shock to you can write you know five hundred page novel in two and a half months. Yeah, it was, it was it was a massive shock, but in a way, really kind of comforting one. I think that um, one of the things that I've always been fascinated by is you know those big questions of you know why are we here, what happened before we were born, what happens after we die, you know, is there anything? And what I've seen over the years, I mean, I, the one time I wrote um, my early books where I wrote a number of supernatural thrillers. And and I was writing about the paranormal and and also touching on the kind of fringe UFOs. And, and back in the in the nineteen eighties, when I first started writing, if you asked any scientist if they believed there was that ghosts existed, they'd laugh at you. Uh, and and if you believed them, if you asked them if UFOs existed, they'd laugh at you. I mean now. And I, I, I remember getting asked by BBC to do a documentary on, on, on ghosts in Scotland. And I went around haunted castles in Scotland. And then I remember talking to Sir Archie Roy, who at that time was president of the, he was the Royal Astronomer, Astronomer Royal at Edinburgh University. And I said, you know, do you think there's any possibility that, that UFOs exist? And he just looked at me and he said, there's absolutely no possibility that they don't. And I think there's been a big sea change. I mean, the, 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 there's a, the, the head of NASA's 9 billion telescope, uh, only about three months ago, she said, um, 
I'm finding it increasingly hard to believe that there isn't other life in a bigger picture. Right, right. So you know, you're getting, I think you're getting the real cream and smartest people in science now realizing that there is there is something else going on. But if there is, doesn't that go against uh, the preachings that, you know, God created humans in his own image and there isn't anything else? Ah, good question. Yeah, well, that depends on what on what other thing is. But, I mean, you know, if, if you... If you look back, you don't have to go very far back, you know, to to, to, you know, to Copernicus and and, and and saying, you know, about which which circle which the sun or the earth and and, and the heresy of you know, getting burnt, threatening with burnt at the stake. Over it to see how narrow science has always had, and and we seem to be in a what I think a very exciting time where scientists are actually having more and more open minds. And not only that, the ability to to explore through technology. I mean, Danny Hillis, who was, I was talking about a few minutes ago about the frog analogy, he said that he wasn't sure that we'd ever find God in the, in the vaults of a Gothic cathedral, or, or nor would we find God out in the kind of wilderness of the African plain. He said, I think it's cyberspace is the place of that we might open the hailing, the hailing frequency. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to cut you right there. We're going to do a couple commercials, and we'll be back to you in just a minute. Can you hang on? Sure. Okay. Don't go away. When Creative Edge Publicity was founded in 2016, they immediately showed that they weren't the same as other publicity firms. They work closely with their individual clients' needs and goals and push harder to get them noticed. Creative Edge believes that communication is an important part of the partnership and that model is how they have built their success. They collaborate and work with local, national, and international media outlets and organizations to meet the client's goals. Creative Edge, it's your brand and your future. And uh, Creative Edge is actually my publicist. It's uh, um, Peter James' publicist and several, several other great uh, writers. Uh, go to their website, which is uh, creativeedgepublicity.com, and take a look and um, and meet and call uh, the publicist in charge there, Mickey Mickelson. Great guy. Absolutely great guy. Okay, let's see. Oh, yes, we have one here for my co-host. That's me. That is him. Imagine deep blue skies, majestic mountains, and acres of lush green orange trees in a tranquil country setting. Sound like a perfect vacation spot? Well, it is. Yes. For your dog. That's right. All Dogs Rule Day Camp and Sleepover is the premium place for your four-legged friends to spend their time away from you. Whether you are going away for a one- or two-night getaway or an extended vacation, All Dogs Rule is the place your dog wants to be when they can't be with you. When your dogs return home, you'll have to ask whose vacation was better. And whose vacation was better, Russ? The doggies. The dogs. So check out their website at alldogsrule.com or give them a call at 805-524-1100 in Fillmore, California. Your dog will thank you. Whoa. Russ and Karen will thank you, and I'll thank Russ not to destroy the equipment in the studio. (laughs) (laughs) All dogs rule. 805-524-1100. Okay, and we're back with uh, Russ Avison and Mr. Peter James on the phone from uh, London, England. And um, Peter, I'm going to, in the, um, golly, we have like, I don't know, 16 minutes left. Jeez, this thing going fast. Um, I'm going to ask you a little bit about your process, if you don't mind. Sure. Okay. When you get up in the morning and you sit down to write, what, what, what is the best time for you to sit down with a clear head and do your writing? Actually, he has six monkeys in his living room, and they've yeah, all typed I'm, I'm the last sure. novel. <laughs> and, well, no, no, they're trying to pound uh, out Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, I have to ask them for time on the typewriter. Here. Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> I have a slightly back-to-front writing day because I started writing books when I was working full-time in film and television. So I kind of carved out the eve, early evening as my, my best time to write. 
So my mental writing day actually starts at six in the evening. Okay. Uh, with a stiff drink, usually a vodka martini. Oh, bless you, my son. <laughs> Good on Tuesday. Uh, often have a cigar, and, and, and I get in the zone, and I just love it. I, I, look, I know so many writers who say they hate writing. I love writing, and I think part of it is that fact that I've got that time of the day, and it's going to be my treat, and I'm, I'm just going to have, for me, fun. I just love that. And I'll write till about 9, 9.30, sometimes 10 at night, and then... Lara, my wife, and I will have supper on a tray on, on our laps in front of television. We'll watch rubbish or occasionally sometimes something good or a movie. Um, and then I, I get up early morning. And either I swim 30 to 40 minutes or kind of treadmill or, or run. Um, having, I take the dogs out first for, for half an hour, and, and then I'll have a swim or a run. Um and then I have, after breakfast, I kind of go to my office and I'll, first of all, do what all writers do these days, which is look at Twitter, look at Instagram, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Facebook, anything to avoid actually sitting down and writing. Um, and look at my YouTube channel. And, and then I, I'll glance just through the emails for anything really urgent. Uh, and then, I'll review what I, I I'm, a, I'm a real caffeine addict in the morning, particularly if I had too much to drink the night before. So I, I get through endless, endless large cups of coffee. Um, and I just, I review what I wrote the night before from around about 10 till about one, one fifteen, and kind of plan what I'm going to write that evening. And then in the afternoons I, I break and I'll either do some catching up on emails, always take the dogs out, um, maybe go for a cycle ride or whatever just to kind of clear my head. And then I kind of about 5, 5.30, I kind of just start settling down and, and mixing my martini is part of my kind of routine. I, I, I make it very specifically. So, you know, I have to chill the glass and slice the lemon and I put four olives and they've got to be Sicilian olives on a stick. <laughs> um, but having said that, I um, and I know your show is called Writer's Block. That's right. I passionately do not believe in Writer's Block. Well, that was a question I was going to ask you, so okay, I'll continue in how I write. But just continuing the question for a second. I've learned, because I, I write for a living, and I'm traveling constantly, doing interviews, book promotion, research. I've learned to write any anywhere. My, my, the best birthday present I ever had was for my dad, my 17th birthday. He bought me a little portable electric typewriter and this great big furious battle axe of a lady to teach me to touch type. And, and she literally would stand over me and, and she covered all the keypad up with little stickers. And if I looked down, she'd hit my knuckles with a ruler. <laughs> and I learned to touch type real fast out of I'll fear. Bet. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll bet. But it, but it, it still being great said ever since. So I can these days. I, I, I write. I can sit in the back of a taxi. I can write. I finished two novels on long haul flights. Um, I love writing in hotel rooms because you're away from all distractions and you just pick up a phone and coffee arrives or whatever. Uh, I can write in a hotel foyer and in, in a cafe. Um, I just so I'm actually equally happy. Literally, just as long as I got my my laptop, I can just zone in. And in terms of writer's block, I'm I'm, I'm constantly being asked by people, you know, do you ever get writer's block? And I and if I and I'll say to somebody, do you get writer's block, and they go yes, and I say. Okay, what are you blocked at the moment? Yes. Okay, what's the problem? Well, I've started my book and I and I now can't go on. And I said, Do you know the ending of your book? And no. they will invariably they'll go, uh, no. And I said, Well, would you get in a car and start driving if you had no idea where you were going? Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was to the supermarket or across America or across England. And you know, I say uh, the key uh, the first key to avoiding writing's block is, is to have the to know the ending, the vanishing point that right. you aim at. Right. Uh, yeah, fifty percent of my books that changes when I get to it, 
because I think of a better twist or a better something smarter. But at least I've got that focus all the way through, and that pulls me along. And and the second, my second thing I always say to people when they say they've got writer's block is, uh, if you were a lawyer, would you have lawyer's block? <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes I think they do. <laughs> if you were a plumber, you'd have plumber's block or electrician's block or taxi driver's block. Oh, I can't drive my taxi today. I'm blocked. Yeah. But, you're a writer. I've got a mortgage and I've got mouths to feed. Right. I can't afford to have block. Right. Right. You know, it's so, funny you say that because we had um, uh, in April of last year, we had uh, a very, very big time writer on the show, uh, John Sanford. I don't know if you know the name. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but uh, we asked him the question and there was like dead silence for just a second. And then he said, well, you know, when I get stuck, I bring in a guy with a gun. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's Raymond Chandler's great line. <laughs> Raymond Chandler said, but I can't think what to write next. I have a man come for a door with a gun in his hand. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and it's actually true. I, I, if I, um, you know, sure, I, I, I'll, I'll get a point. I get to a point where I, the next chapter, how, how do I find the way in? And I'll maybe go just go out for a walk for 10 minutes. Uh, and then I'll come back and I'll very big think, okay, I'll just do something I wasn't expecting to happen. Right, because if you do not, and it's, 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 I think it's a, a really important tip for any writer, which is to surprise yourself. I, I you know, I plan a book in, in in some detail, in that I I always know, as I said, the ending, and I plan roughly the first hundred, the first twenty percent, the first hundred pages, and and the key high points. Uh-huh. But I love it when something pops. Literally wasn't there in my head ten seconds ago. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and, and that's the magic. That's when the magic happens. And I, I always say, if you if you don't surprise your, yourself, you're not going to surprise your readers. Right. That's. I mean, James Fortune said, if you ain't going to keep yourself up worrying about your book, you ain't going to keep your readers up all night reading it. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it's, that's usually when somebody in my one of my books dies. When I'm when I'm just coming out of a, of a writer's pause as it were, and I'll think, oh, wait a minute, I know how to fix this. And you kill Boom. somebody. <laughs> I some, kill somebody off. And it's usually it's somebody that somebody really likes and that's a reader, and they go, oh, you killed them off. Yeah. Yeah, I love block. that power we writers have. <laughs> yeah, I know, and they all go, well, how did you kill him off? I didn't. <laughs> the bad guy in the book killed him off. You know, Peter, there was something interesting, too, in your book, and I, I certainly don't want to give anything away, but uh, first of all, I do want to say thoroughly enjoyed the book. It oh, did keep absolutely. me on the edge of my seat the whole time. But one Thank of the you. one of the, the parts of the uh, the excitement and the suspense that you built was that there were certain characters that you were like, uh-oh, this guy's going to get it next. And you're wondering, what's going to happen? Is he going to exactly. live? Is he not? And what's going to happen? And that, it, that made it fun. It, it, it did make it fun. And, you know, your book is so full of of surprises it's just you keep going whoa and you think well it can't be anymore around the corner there are (laughs) and it just just keeps going and you go wow and then and then you get to the very last page and you had the very last sentence in your book do you remember what it is yeah i'm just gonna is the pope catholic what a great line what a great way to end a book Thank you. Well, I, I've always, I'm a great believer that the two most important lines in a book are the first and the last, because the, the first line is going to determine whether your reader is going to read on. Right. And your last line is going to determine whether they're ever going to read another of your books. Well, I mean, you opened the book with Ross Sunner sitting at a bar getting drunk. I mean, how much better can it be? <laughs> <laughs> I know. How can we all relate to that? Not that we've all not sat in a bar and got drunk before. Uh, with any right, any writer you know ever have a drink? Never. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. What kind of uh, what kind of advice would you give to a new writer? Since this show is geared towards new writers, um, what kind of advice would you would you give a new writer? Were you to give a new writer advice? Yeah. I, well, I, there's, there's two absolute key pieces of advice, I think, and the first is that. You should read the really big selling books of the kind that you want to write. Um, you know, take you know, if you want to write a spy thriller or, or a crime thriller, uh, whatever kind of book that you really want to write. I mean, is to read 
the really successful books, the one, the one that really has impacted on you the most, that's been a big, big seller and deconstructed. Mm-hmm. Literally, if you're going to be a car mechanic, you know, the part of your your education you'd be would be taking car engines apart and, and you know and putting it back together and you know seeing how they work right and i think i think you know, writing is a craft and it's always important to remember that and that's how i you know i started i started with my, my some of my favorite books like rosemary's baby and, and stephen king and the shining and and um some of the great thriller writers and i remember conan doyle and just deconstructing what made that book work what made me engage with the characters and and I and I don't think there's any shame in doing that because all writers learn from their peers. You know, we're we're all influenced by past greats, and hopefully future greats will be influenced by us as well in that mix. Uh, and my second piece of advice is very simple: you cannot edit a blank page. <laughs> oh, that's a very good. That's a very good point. That's a really good point. You know, I write something. We had a um a writer that was on and I believe it was Tosca Lee. Uh, you may know her verse. She's one of Mickey's clients. And I know um, the, yeah, yeah. She's a really good writer, much like yourself. And uh, we asked her the question, what advice would you give a new writer? And she thought for a minute, she goes, Well, here's what I do. I write drunk and I edit sober. <laughs> No, oh. that's another great quote. I love that. <laughs> Feel free that. to write these down, Peter. <laughs> Hemingway, it was Hemingway said that originally. Uh, it's a, it's a great line. We all learn from our peers, saying that we we, we learn from Hemingway. Right, you're right, drunk, edit sober. It's there, great. there you go. You know, I, I, otherwise, I tell writers don't edit your own work. You know, the yeah. best ex, the best expense you're ever going to have is to hire a good editor. Yeah, or, or ask somebody you, who really hates you to edit it. Yes, yes. Oh, that's that too. But then you got to pay them too. Yeah, but don't yeah, don't ever ask a friend. I'm just telling you, it's wonderful. <laughs> well, at least you'd have some, somebody crawling over you, patting you in the back. You know, never give your your book to a friend to edit. Never, never. I mean, Russ reads. Russ probably read a lot of mine. Huh? Yes. And uh, but I don't give it to him to edit. No, 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 no. I keep trying to talk him into writing a book about dog training, but he won't do it. About dog training, ah, right, yeah, that would be. If you could write a book that actually could teach people to actually train dogs and training worked, I tell you what, he's the best there is. This guy right here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, truly. Hey, look, we're getting, we're running out of time. We're about uh, two minutes out. So, if you wouldn't mind giving our uh, giving our listeners uh, your information, how to contact you, and and um, maybe some other titles of some of your other works, and email and all that good stuff. Sure. Okay. Well, on absolute proof, and um, it's out right now in kind of all formats in, in Canada and the U.S. In the United States, it's currently on Audible book only exclusive, but right. narrated by Hugh Bonneville from Downton Abbey. And it will be available in print from October the 4th in the U.S. Um, my other book titles include the kind of the Roy Grace novels, all of which have dead in the title. And I have a new Roy Grace novel coming out in May, which is called Dead at First Sight. You can find out everything about me and everything you don't want to know about me <laughs> on my website, which is easy, it's just www.peterjames.com. And from that, you can link through to my Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook. And what I'm particularly excited about is my YouTube channel, uh, where I have a section called The Author's Studio. And over the last two years, when I've been going around festivals, I've been talking to authors that I meet, um, all right across the spectrum from kind of relatively new first-time authors up to uh, Lee Child, George R. R. Martin, uh, Kathy Reichs, Karen Slaughter, asking them the same 10 questions, um, uh, very quick interviews, uh, saying, you know, like, give a writing tip and how well do you write. So I think any budding author would find, find my YouTube channel of interest. Okay. 
Well, I want to thank you for let's finally finally getting in touch with you and finally being able to have you on the show. It's been a hoot, and we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And right now, it's about your read, your writing time, isn't it? It is. Yeah. What am I doing? Uh, well, I, right now, you're going to be off. having a martini and writing some book <laughs> and a cigar. It's really nice to talk to you both. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it was it was lovely having you, and thank you so much for agreeing to be on with us. Pleasure. Take care. Okay, you, you too, too Peter. Peter. Stay in touch, would you? Thank you. Would love to. Okay, yeah. thank you. Bye-bye. Ciao. And Peter James. Wow. What a, what a guy, huh? Do you know what? He's the kind of guy that you want to sit around a campfire and let him tell stories to. I know. He's I mean, the guy's really just like... really wonderful. You can hang on almost every word. Totally to awesome. I like I mean, and, and his accent. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. So as I'm pulling into the driveway today, yes. into, into the studio, um, what song comes on my my um, Pandora? Don't let the sun catch you crying. Oh, but, <laughs> but Mercy Beat. That's what how that. What, I don't remember who they were, but ah, I love that song. Anyway, next week we have uh, for your listening pleasure J T Bishop, and um, the, and uh, it'll be um, 7 o'clock Pacific time. And so tune in. It's tomorrow night. We have a very special show uh, featuring a new young writer from uh, Simi Valley. Uh, she and her photographer friend will be in here talking about their um, uh, magazine, web magazine that they that they write and produce for uh, Santa Susana High School. So we're looking forward to talking to her tomorrow night. And for um, for everyone else, take care. For us, for me. We are out of here.